I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer-at-large in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. I'm Ida Volk, Europe correspondent in Berlin. It's Wednesday, the 30th of March. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, U.S. President Joe Biden spoke in Warsaw to reassure Ukrainians and NATO allies and partners. This battle will not be won in days or months either. We need to steel ourselves for the long fight ahead. Meanwhile, Jeremy was in Tallinn to report his piece on the new Iron Curtain. So I think what you're seeing um, across NATO at the moment is, is a shift in the dial Um, And there's a spectrum between deterrence and defence. And I think what you'll see over the coming months is a needle shifting far more towards the sort of defensive side of the line. How has NATO evolved since the Cold War? And what has Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed? And we take a listener question on foreign fighters during the invasion of Ukraine. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Welcome back from your trip to Tallinn and welcome back on the podcast. Thank you. Good to be back. To start out, why don't you tell us a bit about your trip and about why Tallinn for this story? Right. Well, I wanted to write a piece on what we're calling Europe's new Iron Curtain, which is to say the intense militarization of NATO's eastern flank following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so I went to Estonia for two reasons. Firstly, because it is a country very much perched on that eastern flank. It's a a small country right up against the border with with Russia that has been often threatened by the Russian government and so is a perfect example of the sort of NATO member state that the alliance needs to step up its defence of given recent events. But secondly, just to understand more generally what is happening along that entire flank. I talk about the new Iron Curtain running from Murmansk in the Arctic down to the Bosphorus, which is of course a bit of a, a riff on Churchill's famous sinews of peace thread in which he talked about the Iron Curtain post-45 going from Stettin to Trieste. So This new Iron Curtain is obviously about a 1,000 kilometers east of the old one. There are obvious differences in the context, in the international circumstances, but also certain echoes, shall we say, of the Cold War. So I was trying also to get a sense of that. And I think it's important to stress that when we talk in this podcast and you and your piece about new Iron Curtain, what we are not saying, in fact, it's quite the opposite, that Central and Eastern Europe is this time stuck on the other side of the Iron Curtain, right? That's one of the the main differences between then and now, in fact. Exactly. And in fact, um, I went to see a a military exercise by British troops who are based in Estonia. The UK has just doubled its presence in Estonia as part of NATO's enhanced forward presence there. I went to see an exercise that they were doing on a former Soviet airfield in the centre of the country that had been built during Soviet times as a fallback airbase for the event of a NATO attack on Kaliningrad. And the historical echoes there captured exactly what you described. This had once been a little to the east of the old Iron Curtain. Now it's very short way to the west of the new Iron Curtain, if we're using that term. So obviously the geography has shifted. And I went there to see a bit kind of what this new Iron Curtain actually looks like. We actually have a, a clip from an exercise that, that you attended. This was this exercise at an airfield in the centre of Estonia. The British troops, as I said, are in the country with the enhanced forward presence. The ones that I was with were 
due to go back to the UK already, but their their stay in Estonia has been extended as part of the UK's doubling of its presence there. And the exercise was one quite relevant to the sort of combat situation that they are in the country to deter, which is a sort of fast-moving situation in which UK troops as part of an international NATO battle group have to defend Estonia's territory from Russia at very short notice. And it involved a plane, an A400M, which is a sort of a four-propellered military transport plane, flying out from RAF Bryce Norton in the UK and dropping... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Popping supplies onto this airfield. So it flew over very low with its back down. Crates of supplies came out of the back on parachutes. And the job of the troops on the ground was to secure the airfield. There was a sort of trench system along the side of the airfield, I believe dating back to its former um, Soviet uses. And they had to secure the space at the, the ground and then collect the supplies. And as I say, this is obviously quite relevant to the sort of combat situations in which they would find themselves in the very alarming event of Russia attacking Estonia or attempting to invade the Baltics. So while I was there, I interviewed two of the soldiers involved in the exercise. The first was Lieutenant Mason, who led it. And he told me a bit about how it would be relevant in a wider combat situation. The airdrop of supplies, it gives us another method of insertion of vital supplies. So uh, working as a a forward presence, in effect, we could be um, separated by uh, a a long, what would be a long logistical supply chain. Um, So airdropping of vital supplies can get them in quickly um, onto, onto onto a forward location. So that's a a massive force multiplier for us. And I also asked him about the overall experience of serving with that multinational UK-led battle group in Estonia. So it's been great. We've worked in a, a vast array of both a more difficult climate than we've been used to operating in the UK with a, a broad range of other NATO partners, be that the Estonians or the other nations of um, NATO that make up the enhanced forward presence. We've worked with French, uh, the Danes and, and, and other nations as well. So it's been a uh, it's been great as a, a as a platoon and a company to, to operate in, in that environment. We've had um, a multitude of exercises and some really challenging training as well. And I also spoke to Fusilier James, who was one of the ground troops on the exercise involved in securing that airfield and securing the supplies. So we've been conducting an exercise, so we've pushed out this morning under the cover of darkness. Uh, and as a small platoon then, we've done some trench clearing. Uh, we've then pushed out pushed our sentries out and then throughout the day we've been conducting clearance patrols throughout the whole day and then reporting back on what we've seen in our patrols and if anything has changed. And he told me what the troops on the ground would do once the supplies had been dropped. As a small section we're going to load onto the TCV's troop carrying vehicle. We're going to drive down to where, the, where they've dropped off and we're going to pick up and load it onto the TCV's and then take it back to our hide. And so how, how would you say things have changed since the invasion? Because it's obviously made some 
fairly abstract security concerns a lot more concrete in that part of the world so how has the situation changed on nato's eastern flank since russia invaded ukraine it's been a real turning point i mean that phrase is used a lot in the context of the events of the last five weeks but it's certainly true of this new iron curtain it helps us to go back a little bit in time i mean the idea that um, nato would have to brace its eastern flank for the potential of some sort of russian aggression there was pretty much unthinkable until not all that long ago. You think back to the 1990s, for example, the NATO-Russia Founding Act in 1997, in which NATO committed not to put substantial permanent troops into its new eastern member states like Estonia. For the first few years of Estonia's and the other Baltic states' NATO membership, there was not even a contingency plan for the defence of the Baltics from Russia, which just goes to show how quickly things have changed. That then changed after Russia's attack on Georgia in 2008, which was the first major shift of direction. But the, the big turning point prior to this year was, of course, 2014 and Russia's annexation of Crimea and de facto occupation of parts of the Donbass. And that saw NATO create these enhanced forward presence battle groups in the three Baltic states and Poland. Um, we'll hear a bit more about those in a moment. It also saw the famous 2% of GDP for defense spending goal turn from a sort of informal guideline to a hardened pledge. It also saw an increase in the um, air policing above the Baltic states, securing the Baltic airspace. So that was a big shift forward. But the events following on and following the 24th of February this year have really drastically accelerated all of those shifts. And I think brought in a, a change of mindset as well about what NATO has to do to secure its, its eastern flank. You've seen major reinforcements, first of all, so about an additional 20,000 NATO troops to the region. The US alone has put about another 12,000 troops into Europe, taking it past 100,000 for the first time since about 2005. New air and missile defense systems have been brought into the frontier states. And many of those countries themselves have been greatly increasing their defense spending. So Estonia, for example, has put a, a sort of one-off 2% of GDP into additional defenses. So everything from howitzers and ammunition and rocket launchers to sea mines to close off its harbors and, and, and the Gulf of Finland. So big spending increases at very short notice. And then finally, the NATO summit last week, as we recorded this on the 24th of March, saw leaders agree to double the number of these enhanced forward presence battle groups. This is a sort of small, but importantly, symbolic battle group that I visited in Estonia. And they're now putting those into the other four states on that eastern flank. So Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, and Bulgaria. So every state on that flank will, will soon have a battle group. There's also discussions about actually expanding the size of those and what they do and actually rupturing finally with the 1997 deal and, and making that presence permanent in those eastern states. So some very big changes are, are afoot. And we're going to hear a lot more about that, particularly at the NATO summit in Madrid in June, which is expected to be the sort of coming together point of a lot of these decisions and discussions about the future of the alliance. Listening to you, Jeremy, it occurs to me that in recent years, despite all the changes that you were describing, we have had leaders who have questioned, who have either outright questioned the utility of NATO. So obviously, Trump comes to mind as somebody who is quite critical of the alliance. You had French President Emmanuel Macron refer to NATO as some version of brain dead and, and you know, Germany committing to 2% of GDP on defense spending and then not actually doing it. But at the same time, it's, it's not as though there weren't Russian incursions into other countries in Europe, as you say. It was 2008 in Georgia, 2014 with Ukraine, to say nothing of the various exercises in Eastern Europe. So why do you think 
this sort of perception of, well, NATO is a relic of, of the past persisted? And what is it about this invasion, this war that has gotten in particular Western Europeans to think differently? I think we could see it as a gradual process. And that shift of mentality has played out at different speeds in different parts of the alliance, and indeed different parts of the political systems within individual countries. And you mentioned Trump, for example. I think one of the interesting things about reporting this from Estonia was I spoke to a number of officials and think tankers in Tallinn. And obviously, Estonia feels itself in a very grim and dark way, vindicated by recent events, because the the Baltics, and particularly Estonia, have been among those who always, pretty much always saw the potential for an aggressive threat from Russia. Before before I went out there, I my old friend Edward Lucas, who's a great fan of Estonia, and, and another person who warned us of, of, of Russia's potential to disrupt European security, sent me a speech by Lennart Meri, who's the the legendary post-Soviet Estonian president from 1994, so really not long after the end of the Cold War, in Hamburg, in which he warned that you know Russia will only find stability and fraternity in Europe if it abandons its old imperialist tendencies. And I think in the Baltics, this idea that Russia would be potential of something like what's happened recently never quite went away. And then you, of course, have countries like Germany, where it is the complete opposite, where they were really taken by surprise by recent events. But the same can be said to some extent, even of the UK, which in some respects is a bit a little bit further down along the curve than the likes of Germany. I found a quote while reporting this by Boris Johnson only from November, in which he told the House of Commons Liaison Committee, we have to recognise that the old concepts of fighting big tank battles on the European landmass are over and look at where we are now. So I think it's been a bit of it's been a gradual process. It's unfolded over events like the invasion of Georgia, like 2014. But I think what the sheer force of the 24th of February and the days since has served to sweep away any last doubts um, or any last benefit of the doubt that Putin and the Kremlin were given by Europeans and their other NATO allies. And I think it's sort of the culmination of a long process. And by the way, one of the points I make in the essay is that in some respects, 2014 to 2022 looks like a sort of interim period where the sort of the old post-Cold War assumptions hadn't quite died, but the new realization of Europe's dark new security reality hadn't quite dawned. And I think that the the invasion of Ukraine then bookends that. And we're now in a new era. And so you went to Estonia to see what NATO calls the enhanced forward presence. Can you talk a bit more about the EFPs and their purpose? So I also spoke while in Tallinn with Colonel Di Bevan, who is the commander of the enhanced forward presence in Estonia. And he told me a bit more about what the EFP, as it's known, is and its significance. The EFP was set up uh, following uh, Russian aggression within U- within Ukraine and Crimea. And the, the EFP was designed to provide a immediate um, force that could um, defend Estonia in the short term against a very sort of short no- notice, limited incursion. And it was also there designed to buy time for the rest of NATO to react and, and to then provide a sort of credible force that could come in and counter uh, adversary aggression. It's made up of um, a number of contributing nations. Uh, In Estonia, the UK is the lead nation, but works hand in glove with the French and with the uh, Danish contingents that come out on an alternating basis. And through those three contributing nations, we provide a a combined arms battle group 
um, to work alongside Estonia within Estonian defence and, and for the collective defence of the region. He also told me how the enhanced forward presence in Estonia has changed since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So NATO has been watching very carefully the NATO, the Russian invasion of uh, of Ukraine, and is uh, constantly reviewing its force posture and those and those capabilities it has on its eastern flank. And what you've seen in the last few months is is, is NATO member states reinforcing and strengthening the forces that they hold um, in the east. And the UK, France, and Denmark have all reinforced within Estonia. So the UK has provided an extra battle group, um, and the Danes have come in with their um, scheduled subunit. But equally, you've seen the French reinforce with a mountain unit, which are specialists in extreme cold weather, come into Estonia. So that we've now got two battle groups operating in Estonia for the immediate future, and they provide a significant defensive capability to the region. And Colonel Dyde Bevan concluded by talking a bit about the shift in mentality within NATO as a result of the invasion. So I think what you're seeing um, across NATO at the moment is is a shift in the dial um, and there's a spectrum between deterrence and defence. And I think what you'll see over the coming months is a needle shifting far more towards the sort of defensive side of the line. And that will mean that the NATO um, reviews the four capabilities that it has in the east of Europe. And you'll see, I think you'll see a strengthening of the battle groups that you have here to make sure that NATO is able to defend against any adversaries threat. Now, what he was saying in that final clip, this shift from deterrence to defence, is very much in line with what I heard also from Estonian officials and planners in Tallinn, who felt that this prior role of, of, of this NATO EFP in Estonia had been to, to demonstrate to Russia that if it attacked, it would be pulling in the rest of NATO. It was serving as a tripwire, as they say. And the sense in Tallinn now is that's no longer enough. Um, it's no longer enough to have a smallish group of NATO troops that just ensure that, that that symbolically NATO is pulled into any conflict. Their argument now is that you actually need the capabilities to hold off a Russian, a full-scale Russian invasion, which is, of course, something quite different. And so the conversations there are about making the presence permanent, increasing the numbers of troops, greater integration between the NATO forces and um, Estonian ones, more in terms of air defence. And so this mentality shift is sparking a very big shift, or will spark a very big shift on the ground too. And that's quite different to Ukraine, right? There is a lot of discussion. If we don't do anything for Ukraine, then who's to say that we will do anything if if Russia really were to attack the Baltics, but the EFPs and all the kind of associated military presence, NATO military presence in the Baltics makes the situation completely different and the way that we would respond is completely different, right? Yeah, I have to say that those in Thailand not sitting there quaking in their boots that, that Russia is going to invade tomorrow, I should make that clear. They're relatively confident about the current situation. Obviously, the Russian armed forces have turned out not to be as formidable as some feared, you know, in on the battlefield in Ukraine. The concerns are, are sort of more indirect. The first is that in some sort of peace talks ending the conflict in Ukraine, Putin walks out with enough wins that he thinks that it would be worth trying something vis-a-vis the, the Baltics or other parts of uh, the eastern flank of NATO. If not this year, then at some point in the future. And the, the second concern is that he might attempt something non-conventional, either a quote-unquote peacekeeping mission into the border area or cutting off energy or a cyber attack. Russia already unleashed a cyber attack in Estonia as early as 2007. 
um, pushing migrants across the border, as, as you reported on the Belarus-Polish border, Ido, last year, or possibly flooding Estonia with disinformation of some sort. And so those are the concerns, not an immediate attack. But you're right, the idea is to make it very clear that, to use the mantra that everyone seems to be using these days, NATO will defend every inch of its territory. I actually had a question for you, Emily, because obviously the US is absolutely fundamental to all of this. And Biden's support for this new posture came across quite clearly, I thought, in his trip to Europe last week. But I wonder how it's seen from Washington, particularly in light of the supposed um, reorientation towards the contest with China. It's been said often that US presidents, successive US presidents have tried to refocus on, on China, but keep being pulled back to other arenas, whether it's Afghanistan, the Middle East, or now Europe. Do you see some sort of permanent shift in, in the priorities in, in Washington's foreign policy corridors of power? Or do you see attention turning back to China whenever the, the situation in, in Ukraine settles in some way? I think with Biden, we're going to see a continued focus on Ukraine and Russia. I think that people should remember that Biden is has a very long career in Washington, part of which took place during the Cold War, that he was the point person on Ukraine during the Obama administration, the person pushing for more support for Ukraine during the Obama administration. And I think his short of a no-fly zone or that which he and his administration think could propel us into a larger conflict has been pretty clear about America's support for Ukraine and in particular for NATO. Having said that, if the conflict ends or is drawn out and draws on, and if Trump is reelected, or if there is a, a Republican or a Democratic president who's, who's just less committed to the idea of NATO and the idea of America's focus on Europe, then it could shift. But I think this idea that we're going to be completely uh, focused on the Indo-Pacific in this administration. I think that's just, that's out the window. And partly, the, not that we're not going to focus at all, but it, it also we should point out that the United States, one of its main partners in that was India. And I think some of the cracks in the that were already there in the US-India relationship have become more evident through Russia's war in Ukraine because India has abstained at the UN, because India is continuing to work with Russia in a way that perhaps the United States does not like. When I wrote on this Everybody on the Indian side seemed to think, or who was familiar with Indian thinking, the Modi government's thinking, seemed to say that there's too there's too much that India and the United States are already doing together for this to really change things. Maybe, right? But we don't know exactly what's going to happen. I, I think that people who say, well, this won't change anything between the United States and India, between Washington and Delhi, are underestimating how much has changed. On that, one of the points that came across sometimes a little bit between the lines in my, my conversations in Thailand, but also from what I understand of the debates in capitals like Warsaw, is that yes, these countries on NATO's eastern flank are investing a lot in the spirit of a common NATO defense, but they're also investing a lot in their defenses with the possibility that the US under a future president, Trump too or similar, might not be as reliable and that NATO itself might not be as cohesive as it is now. So one of the one of the curiosities of this spending is it is both very much aligned with NATO for now, but it is also simultaneously a hedge against NATO fragmenting in some form in the future. I think that even without this war, following the Trump administration, it, it would be against their own self-interest for these countries not to do that, particularly because even with Biden or a similarly minded person, focused on Eastern Europe, focused on Russia, 
the fact that they've slightly taken their eyes off China doesn't mean that China is necessarily going to behave less aggressively or won't test the United States. Although we've spoken on recent podcasts about maybe that's less likely vis-a-vis Taiwan, for example, right now. But, um, you know, right now, the United States attention has been brought back to Europe. That does not mean that at some point it won't be forced away from Europe, regardless of who the president is sitting in the White House. One would imagine that Europe would want to be able to defend itself to its fullest. Absolutely. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just two dollars a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now with that, we are going to turn to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. us. That was perfect. All right. Our question this week comes to us via email, and it is, switching gears only slightly, I was wondering, given the presence of Syrian fighters in Ukraine and the potential presence of Belarusian troops, does this change the balance with regard to foreign intervention in the war? Would there be a justification for Ukrainian allies to send in troops if Assad and Lukashenko are? Ido, we will let you take that one first. So 
The reason that no uh, Western country has sent troops into Ukraine is not really because they don't want to help Ukraine. And we know that is not the reason because Western countries are doing really quite a lot in terms of, in particular, military support to Ukraine. They're sending anti-tank weapons, drones, anti-aircraft weapons, and, and so on, which we know are making quite a big difference. And I saw some reporting today saying that I think roughly about half the javelins that the US has have been sent to Ukraine. So it's not some kind of marginal effort. It's a really a huge amount of military help and support has been given to Ukraine. The reason that Western countries have not sent troops into Ukraine is because such an act or a similar act, such as, for example, a no-fly zone, that would be viewed as an act of war by Russia because it would be an act of war on Russia. It would be sending fighters to engage or at least threaten to engage Russian troops in combat, which is the definition of an act of war. The reason that, that there are not troops in Ukraine is not because we're afraid of kind of disproportionality or something else. It's because to send in troops, to send in Western troops to Ukraine would be taken as an act of war by Russia. And so if further external actors were to send in, well, third parties were to send in troops in support of Russia's effort, that fundamental calculus wouldn't really be any different. Having said that, the Syrian mercenary thing seems, we don't know quite how many are there, if they're there at all. They do seem to be recruiting campaigns in Syria, but as to how many have actually made it there, that's still unclear. And the Belarusians, well, so far, although Belarus has been used as a kind of staging ground by the Russian military for its invasion, and in particular that kind of push from the north towards Kiev, which we now know was pretty unsuccessful, the Belarusian military don't seem to be directly involved in this. And this is actually quite an interesting question. Why is this, right? So I spoke to a bunch of people before the invasion who pretty much all said that Belarusian military, there were no kind of independent chains of commands. It was increasingly integrated into the Russian military, into Russian chains of command, and any kind of semblance of sovereignty was, Belarusian sovereignty with regards to Russia was uh, disappearing fast. Now that clearly isn't the case. Um, it's almost certain that Russia is asking Belarus to join its effort, but Belarus seems to be refusing to, to do so. And the people I speak to say that that Maybe because Lukashenko knows that he needs the army on his side, literally physically within Belarus, to contain any attempt at pushing him out of power. And a couple of weeks ago, the Ukrainians were saying that they were expecting an, an attack from the Belarusians, which never came. Um, that's probably good, because if it were to come, it would be in the west of the country with the potential for spillover to NATO territory drastically higher, but it, it doesn't seem to be coming. So in, in some ways, this is a fairly hypothetical question, but essentially the reason why that hasn't been done, why Western troops have not been sent to, to Ukraine is basically because we don't want to declare war on Russia. One, one quick thing I'd throw into that is that Carl asked whether the Syrian and Belarusian dimension might provide a justification. I think it's worth remembering that those are both, as you've said, both Russian client states that are already under heavy Western sanctions and are effectively, to one extent or another, international pariahs, or at least in the West. And so to say, to just say, because they're participating, we will too, I think creates a false equation between the sorts of support that the West might provide as Ukraine and, 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 the, and the character of those states potentially sending troops in which even as you say, Edith, is, is not even that certain anyway. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. 
That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for our soon-to-be-announced interview. As a reminder, you can read my cover feature on Europe's new Iron Curtain in this week's issue of The New Statesman. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please, as ever, like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends about us. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.